Logocentrifugal podcast. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logocentrifugal. Maybe you're also Logocentrifugal. I'm not sure. Maybe you're not either. So while you figure it out, let me introduce today's special guest. I have with me today the very talented, the very uh, sage, the one and only Oz Samat. Now, Oz is a man I ran into on Twitter. Uh, I'm not sure exactly even how I ran into you. Maybe because of Jose Rosado or something. I'm not sure. But what I really appreciate about what you do is, number one, music has a very big spot in my heart, especially classical music and jazz music, because my wife is a classical pianist, and um, it's something that I treasure because I get to hear her play, and it just brings a lot of happiness into my life. And number two is that you're sort of a relentlessly happy, positive, and kind person, and that's pretty rare, especially in the social media world. I mean, most people are pretty nice and face-to-face, but they get on that internet world and they just feel carte blanche to just launch insults anywhere that they want to do. And um, you seem to totally avoid that kind of thing. And uh, that's that's pretty special, I think. And, uh, you know, so I wanted to bring you on here and kind of talk about what leads to that kind of outlook on the world and, and kind of the, the genesis of, of Oz. And so with that very sparse introduction, let me first thank you for taking the time to be here. Welcome to the Logos and Trivical podcast, and uh, why don't you fill in the gaps for the audience and for myself, frankly, about who you are and what you do. Okay, thanks, Chance. Thank you, Mr. Logos and Trivical. I just <laughs> like the fact, I, I, it's, it's such a mouthful, but it's so beautiful. Um, I can fill in where, where, I, where I think I first found you. Uh, I think it was Jose Rosado. Uh, and um, I think what happened was, I think he probably tweeted you or something. And I saw, I was like, well, that's a really long name. And then uh, I, I found out about your book. And, and so I found out about your book and I was very curious about it. And it was at the beginning when you started, I think it was the first few podcast episodes that you did. And you did a giveaway. So you did a giveaway, something like listen to the podcast and uh, tell me this piece of information. And I entered your competition and I won your book which I quickly devoured in like a sitting and I read it twice or three times. And I thought it was, I thought your book was freaking brilliant, man. It was just like, whoa, it's all in his head. And it's just like, like, let's reframe, let's program reality. And I was, I was mind blown. I was like, honestly thought, I thought the book was, um, showed the depth of how you thought of the world and how you perceive the world. And so I was, I was kind of mesmerized by it. I still, I still want to write a review for it. I haven't done that. Uh, and that's how I found out about you and how I got into your world. And I think after that, I went to your Gumroad page and kind of checked out your other stuff as well. Um, so that's how I found out about you. But about me, um, I grew up in Malaysia. So I don't know whether you had anyone else uh, from Southeast Asia on your show yet. Have you? Well, I, I had... Uh... I had uh, my friend Kunal from India, but that's not quite the same. So not really. Yeah, it's like yeah, East Asia, South, yeah, South Asia. So um, I guess uh, so. How what's my story? Um, I grew up in a family of artists, basically. I mean, my 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 dad's a writer. He's actually quite a prominent writer here in Malaysia. He's um, Malaysia, one of Malaysia's national laureates. He basically looks like Gandalf, literally with a beard and all. And he's like 87 now. I grew up in a family where uh, 
he we had books all around the house like literally uh like tons of books my mom is also a journalist and she was uh, working in a women's magazine so i'm the awkward kid with in the house we had ridiculous amounts of cosmopolitan and vogue magazines all around because that was part of her work on one side you had all these women's magazines from the 80s because i i am born in 1980 so I, i was so used to seeing um American 80s fashion with big hair and like <laughs> really bright colors and stuff like that and you know there there's always like a help section in the back and all this um mass media buy this these clothes these are these are awesome and then on one side my my dad had stuff like Ernest Hemingway and like what stuff is here he has a whole bunch of James Patterson he has Gorbachev he has political books Gunther Grass you know So I grew up in a family where um literature reading and uh the concept of spending your money on books uh until you were completely broke was not something uh fawn upon. So I I grew up in that kind of family where knowledge and um growing yourself intellectually was part of my childhood. And so that's my background as a kid and what led me was when I was a kid I wanted to become a writer because my dad's a writer, my mom's a writer. That would make sense, right? Uh but at some point when i was 16 after my uh after growing up listening to when i was 13 14 15 i was listening to gangster rap i was into snoop doggy dog and warren g american hip hop because i would buy a newspaper and uh there's the newspaper here called the star and they would have the billboard magazine charts and one day i saw snoop doggy dog doggy style number 1 1994 or something like that 1993 1994 and i thought i have never heard of this person and this was pre internet so i had no clue what i was getting into and so and my dad's open minded so he's like you know he'll he'll buy me a cd he even bought me gangster rap cd's he's like oh you want this is 48 ringgit uh okay sure and i was like blown away i'm a 14 14 year old kid i'm listening to this guy talk about all these gangster rap things and i was like wow this is very different than nirvana or this is very different than like tlc this is very different than criss cross this is very different than pop standard pop music <laughs> criss cross <laughs> yeah 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 i was i was all i was all into that man i was i i i did uh i performed jumped at my school assembly for <laughs> english day serious and i tripped on the mic and so people couldn't hear half of what i was rapping even when i was like the middle 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 mad daddy i can't do it anymore but i, I used to do it <laughs> anyways so uh so i i i listened to that i was in a, in a hip hop stage outcast crisscross tlc snoop doggy dog warren g a great mac all 90 94 to 96 amazing years uh for hip hop and and then what happened was uh, someone introduced me to nirvana and so i i listened to grunge and i was like i want to play guitar And so my grandma bought me an 80 ring uh, gave me money to buy an 80 ringgit guitar that's like $20. Uh this blue sunburst capo guitar which means it's like a really cheap guitar that you would go to a shopping mall and buy. And that was my first guitar and after 3 months I never I I didn't quit so my dad said, you know, if you're going to still play guitar, I'm going to buy I'll buy you a nice classical guitar if you promise to learn to read music and take lessons. And I'm like, sure, you know, you're going to bribe me with a guitar, I'll take lessons. and that was my journey man and that was like 23 years ago and since then all i've done from high school onwards was just do music so i i went to i went to music school after 2 years of playing guitar went to music school for 5 years got a 
got a degree in music arranging, a gig for about two years, uh, moved to the States. I was in Boston. I went to Berklee College of Music. I got some uh, scholarship. I did a dual major in jazz composition and guitar performance. Right after I graduated, I taught there for the summer guitar session. So I was on faculty for like the, the week-long program. Moved to San Francisco Bay Area. I was gigging there for a while. And then I, I, went, uh, I went to uh, do my master's at San Jose State University, master's in jazz studies. Uh, gig, again, gigged there for about a year. Moved back to Kuala Lumpur in 2011. And I've been based here. Um, and I've done a lot of things from playing with the orchestra, playing video game music, playing Final Fantasy with a Malaysian Philharmonic Orchestra, to playing solo gigs, to playing with singer-songwriters, to touring in Hong Kong, Macau, Singapore, uh, Europe. Uh, I haven't, I've, I've been back to the States, but I haven't uh, been back to the States for a tour. Uh, and just most recently, I've just been writing ebooks. you know. You know, you find Jose Rosado and you're like, yeah, man, write ebooks. I mean, I've been writing ebooks before that, but he kind of like inspired me to kind of level up that game. Uh, and so, yeah, I teach via Skype. I perform. My next gig is in the Hong Kong International Jazz Festival next month. So hopefully Hong Kong is kind of like more chill when I'm there. Uh, and yeah, I, I've, I've been, uh, one of the things I do nowadays is I, I've been doing a lot of Malay jazz, which is uh, Malay uh, jazz music in, from the 60s and 70s that was written here in Malaysia. And so that's one of the things I've been performing. I also perform with my dad. Like I said, my dad's a poet. We just did uh, two shows in Singapore at this place called the Arts House, which is actually the old parliament building in Singapore. So it's literally where parliament used to like assemble there. Now they have a new building, but that, that building is kind of like an art center. So they have like uh, kind of theater stuff, poetry, spoken word things, speeches, panel discussions, intellectually, and screenings and stuff like that. So I was just in Singapore for like 11 days and I'm back here in Kuala Lumpur. And that's my short story. Cool. Man, there's a lot yeah. of stuff in uh, The first question I have is, you got your car, guitar right next to you? Yeah, I do. It's here. Uh, let me take it out. Uh, you know yeah, this? Yeah, this is my guitar. Did you name it? Um, actually, my girlfriend named it. Uh, I usually never name my guitars. I just call them by the brand name or whatever it is. Uh, but she named this Gruffalo, like from the children's book, Gruffalo. So this is, I think she called this Gruffalo 2, I guess. Yeah, but it's a Benjamin guitar. It's a British, uh, British handmade guitar. Yeah. The, the reason I asked if you had that is because there's something very interesting about jazz, and you kind of highlighted it, which is that, you know, it sort of arose out of the, um, like, American South, and, and then it sort of spread all over America, and then it spread all over the world, and a lot of indigenous music kind of melded in with jazz and it happened all across Africa and but yeah. I've never I've never heard any Malay jazz before and I would really like to hear some so I have an idea of what you're talking about. Would you sure. mind playing? Uh, yeah sure sure let me let me play you something. So the thing is this um, I think part of it is has to do with the melodies and the lyrics. So you're gonna miss out on a little bit of the nuances because of you're not gonna hear me sing because I'm a horrible singer. I don't I don't I don't sing in tune. Uh, but let me play you one. Uh, this one's called Getaran Jiwa. It's by a, a composer, this guy named P. Ramli. And P. Ramli was quite special because he was kind of Malaysia's renaissance man. He was an actor, a director. I think you might be fascinated with the crazy amount of how prolific he was. He was an actor, a director, a singer, a composer. And uh, he basically kind of like, kind of, kind of like was 
he's still respected as kind of a renaissance man for the whole scene, even years after his passing. And this song is actually kind of, it's called Gitaran Jiwa, which means something like stirring of the soul. And it's, it's, uh, it's a love song for song. One of the lines in the song is, Andai uh, dipisah lagu dan irama, lemah tiada berjiwa. Which is, if you separate melody and rhythm, uh, you would lose its soul. Song would lose its soul. That's literally part. Of, I mean, he didn't wrote the lyrics to that. I mean, another guy, Sudar Maji, his collaborator, wrote it. But I think the song really embodies that. So I'll play you like once through the form, so you have a kind of a clue.
that's awesome. Cool. I was uh, I was kind of getting a Django Reinhardt vibe until the percussive stuff started coming in. Yeah, I, I was I was super into Django as well. I mean, I'm super into Django as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody's super into Django. <laughs> what a uh, character! <laughs> he's, he's such a character. Crazy, crazy, amazing musician. Yeah, boy, you know. That's a beautiful song, and and as I was watching you play, um, there's a couple things I noticed. Number one, it it just seemed like your soul just seems to exude out of you while you're playing. I can tell you just really love it. You just love it, and it's it's infectious. And number two is, and this is more just sort of a a nuanced thing that maybe some people won't appreciate, but something I really appreciated just about that little bit of playing I watched you is, you're not afraid to let the quiet notes be quiet. You're not afraid to just sort of let that sort of title in and out go. And so many times people, especially young musicians want to just make sure every single note is loud and in your face. And, and that was not the case with you. And that's something I appreciate. So, you know, th thanks for playing that. And yeah, thank you. One thing I'm curious about, because I did, as I mentioned, I kind of got that sort of title groove, going on there and is is that is the sort of water a big influence on Malaysian music or it's interesting that you caught that without me uh, talking about it um the i find that a lot of Malaysian music especially from that era and and actually Malay literature or poetry in general um i apologize with the construction there's literally an apartment being built right in front of here um there is a, a huge emphasis on nature as imagery. It's a little bit like if you check out like Chinese poetry, there's a lot of uh, imagery about like rivers and waters and things like that. Malay poetry tends to be about, Malay poetry or Malay song lyrics from that era tend to be about the moon, the stars, the sun, morning, night, uh, and comparisons. All the, all the love songs tend to be comparisons of things with nature. And that's like, it is so often across different composers. So I think it's because like around, uh, around the era, it was still not, um, there was, people live in cities, but it was not as a big thing, like imageries of cities. Like if you check out currently, like uh, in Malaysia, there'll be more, uh, especially with Malaysian hip hop or Asia, like Malaysian hip hop in general, there's more like gritty city life, but it's not like LA, you know, like, like LA again, city life, but it's still like, the problems here as well but around that time nature rivers water moon stars common thing that's very interesting and you know i'm sure that just even exposing yourself to that music and learning how to play it uh, sort of kind of shapes the way that you look at the world and, and the way that you express your art and i i guess i wonder um you know how has how has the different music that you've been exposed to and how has um, the culture surrounding you sort of shaped the way that you interface with music and, and maybe the, you know, jazz is not necessarily the most common direction for a person to go musically. And, and, you know, your dad said you have to learn to read music and that's a famous thing with guitar players. It's like 1% of guitar <laughs> ever read music besides just tabs or whatever. And I guess I'm, I'm sort of curious about how the genesis of, you choosing into jazz and, and the stylistic choices you make has been influenced by the world that you've been brought up in. Okay. That's, that's such a great way of asking it. I've no, no one's asked me exactly in that manner. Uh, what happened was, man, 
I started playing grunge, right? So I started playing Nirvana, like smells like Teen Spirit, nine, like late nineties, uh, well early nineties grunge music. So I was doing stuff like. <laughs> That's that's what I played, you know. Like, that's what I grew up. You know, that that's when I started playing. That was why I played. Uh, and then what happened was, um, and it's interesting because what happened with that style of music, that what got me was, I I was used to listening to very produced American hip hop. Which means that all the sounds are very beautiful. I mean, the lyrics might be gritty, but the, the actual tones that you get out of a keyboard or the samples were very beautiful sounds. And like grunge to me was like, why is the mix so horrible? I was like 15. I was like, why is the sound so like gnarly? You know, and, and I came in from grunge. So I didn't even come in from like produce. You know, it, it wasn't like I listened to a lot of the police. I mean, I listened to the Beatles. The Beatles was another big influence to me. Uh, but I just came in, it was the allure of like, how do people listen to something so rough? That was my initial impression. And from that, when my dad uh, kind of bribed me into taking, uh, learning how to read music, I was learning, actually I took classical guitar lessons. I was doing stuff like. That kind of stuff, you know? And so I was doing that. Uh, the advantage of coming from that that kind of perspective was, like you said, I was probably like the very small population of guitarists that I, I could actually read music. Uh, and what happened later on was that gave me an advantage because I started playing music when I was 16. So when I, when I started music college, when I was about 17 or 18, I met, I had classmates, man, that were playing piano, play piano since they were four and also double on violin. I played, I, I was in a classroom of 15, 14, 15 people. Some of them, um, they grew up in, uh, there's a famous program here called like something like the Yamaha's Young Musicians thing or something. Yes. And that one, what happened with the JMC stuff is they all, uh, almost everyone from that program had perfect pitch because they've been training since they were like freaking four years old. So they could, you know, you could drop a coin and be like A flat, but slightly flat or something. I, so I was surrounded by people like that. And I like, I can't even tell if the song's verse is done or something around that time. And so I came in from classical so I could read. So at least I had that. And I was very, because I decided, and I was from a pure science stream. See, in the high school here, you could be an art stream student. So you could study literature and like fine arts, things like that. And you could be in a science stream where you had to take stuff like physics, biology, uh, chemistry, um, and those subjects would basically, you would be basically kind of the smart people. If you were in Asia, in Malaysia, if you were in the pure science stream, that was where you would be led to. You're going to take computer science and you're going to be an engineer and you're going to be electrical engineering. All the, all this uh, kind of things that at that time in 1998 were uh, what would be considered uh, profitable careers to go into. So you would actually be able to make money, make a living. And so I was from a pure science stream and my whole environment around me in school, I, w I went to public school. And in fact, my school was the second worst school in terms of discipline <laughs> in the whole area. So I remember going out from my school and there would be gang fights outside or like rumors of gang fights and people would bring knives and shit like that. It's crazy. Uh, I wasn't, 
part of that scene, but it was not like the safest school ever. But you know, I was in so-called the good people's class, the 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 smart kids class, whatever. And I decided to do music. And my my you should have seen my math teacher. He she went completely berserk. You're doing music, you're doing music. Like it was completely like not the thing. And so I I did classical, and then I went to music school. And uh, at that point, I remember I remember the exact moment when I decided like jazz was a thing I was so fascinated with. I was in the class um, with this guy Hanafi Imam. He's a bass player who went to Berkeley as well. And um, there was a singer in the class, Tahira Tahira Roshina. She's a good friend of mine, and she wanted to sing Misty, uh, you know, like Ella Fitzgerald version, Ella Fitzgerald, or like um, who's the other lady? Uh, anyways, like she wanted to sing Misty and. Uh, my teacher asked, you know, who wants to play guitar for her? Because, I mean, she plays guitar, but not, not that well. Uh, okay for, like, singer-songwriter stuff. So I said, I want to do it. And she said, oh, you know, you may have to transpose it. I'm like, I want to do it. I, I, did, I, I just volunteered. I, not that I was very good at transposing E-flat to C. I, I, I was horrible at it. But I was like, that's a, that seems hard. I'll, I'll try. <laughs> you know, I, I just like a challenge. I, I kind of grew up in a family where I like the challenge. And I remember watching a Joe Pass video on VHS in the library. I was like, yeah, I've heard Misty. I probably heard it like once at that point. Once ever in my life. I was 18. I was like, yeah, I can do it. I've heard that song before one time. You know, I'm, uh, you, know you go, just like, it's like going into the pool, into the deep end. I remember spending like probably an hour and a half trying to freaking change the key. And then I found the chords and it was all like the wrong shapes because I used the chord dictionary and it's, it's a horrible way of learning jazz at that point. But then what happened after that was someone told me about Charlie Parker and said, if you want to play jazz, you have to listen to Charlie Parker. And I'm like, okay, who's this Charlie Parker person? I have no clue. And so uh, went to the music store and uh, my dad bought me the CD. I, I found a CD called Bird's Best Bop. And it's basically his best recordings out of the Verve when he was on Verve Records. I listened to it. And you have to remember, this is quite a leap for me. I grew up listening to R&B and hip-hop. Then I listened to grunge. And here I was listening to Charlie Parker. That's a huge leap for my ears, my fragile pop ears. And I, <laughs> I listened to it. And I read, you know, I had the CDs. I read the inlays that, oh, you know, he listened to Stravinsky, the Firebird Suite. And he listened to all this classical music. And I was listening to it. And my first impression was, wow, this is really horrible music. It was so dissonant to my ears because of all the extensions, all the notes were all the tension notes. So literally, he was playing the correct notes, but the worst correct notes you could play over the song. So it'd be like, you know, I'd, I'd be like... I mean... I'm I'm messing it up, but I was listening to all these songs, and even though they were blues, I was like, "Why is this blues?" It was so confusing to me. I was like listening to it, but I like a challenge, and this is why I did. I literally had the CD on. I put it on my CD player, a little little small CD player. I just put it on repeat, and that's how I consume music that I didn't understand. I like things that I didn't understand. If I didn't understand it, I liked it even more. And so I forced myself to listen to Charlie Parker, Bird's Best Pop, again and again and again and again. Until I think it took me like a year and I'm finally like, okay, it doesn't sound so dissonant now. It, it just sounds like I could enjoy this. But by now, I think it's so, it's so inside compared to a lot of the other stuff I listen to now. That's like sweet music to me. It's like, oh, this is like, yeah, Charlie Parker is super inside. But I remember forcing myself for a year to listen to it until I finally could like actually enjoy it. 
And uh, a lot of the, the music that I've been exposed to, I force-fed myself music. Like I listened to this, another composer that, um, I think it's, um, I forgot the guy's name, but he wrote uh, this thing called the El Bicamaro Negro. Uh, it's a classical composer. Uh, I think it's Leo Brower. I think it's a Cuban composer or something. And, and I listened to the album knowing very well it was very hard to listen to. I would put on a CD and again, I just like listen to it again and again and again and again until I finally started to enjoy it. Because the inlay said it was good. This guy said, this guy's a genius. I was like, okay, he's a genius. I have no clue why because I was like, I'm, try I'm trying to understand it. I was so confused. And um, my life has been led, this is how my life has been. I've always been like, okay, I have no clue what this is. I'm super fascinated. And that's how I, I study with people because I don't understand what they're doing, you know. I travel, I travel, man. I travel to study with people because it's like, I don't know what you're doing. I really want to understand it. And part, that's part of the journey, which is why my fascination with education. Because if I can understand something and I can get someone, if it took me a year, if I can get you to get it in like three weeks or something, I'm like, yes. I finally broken up, broken it apart and reassembled it enough that someone could get it into their playing much faster. That, that's me. I like, I, like a, I like a puzzle. There's, there's two things I want to touch on there, and one of them is just a whimsical thing. There's a hip-hop artist named Aesop Rock, and he has a song called Daylight, and in the chorus he says, All I ever wanted was to pick apart the day, put the pieces back together my way. <laughs> and so, you know, I always identified with that because nice. I'm a person who thinks sort of, in webs and connections and things. And the second thing is also something I identify with what you said, uh, which is that, and let me frame this a little bit, you know, pop music is very popular because it's comfortable and simple and easily accessible. And that's why it's popular music. Um, and it has its place and everything, but it's very sort of saccharine sweet. It's just, it's, it's like, a, for me, it's like something that's a treat that you just kind of, it's like, Hey, you know, I feel like dancing and singing right now. I'm going to put on this song, but, the the real the music that I find most fulfilling is challenging and there's this band in particular when you were talking about I don't know what the hell's going on here but I want to figure it out it was this uh, sort of psychedelic rock band with a lot of infusions of jazz and classical music called the Mahavishnu Orchestra love them I, yeah when I first heard their music I was like what the <laughs> what is going on here and and there it's were crazy. parts of it accessible but it was only you know it'd be like an 11 minute song and for 30 seconds i'd be like oh, this is i, I could dig the melody here and then wah, 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 wah. <laughs> okay okay but but there's some part of my brain that thinks that this makes sense i'm just going to listen to this album for the next like, i'm just going to play it over and over again until i kind of oh, i was like oh well this is you know like they're they're making metaphor into music and then sort of like and, and your brain is processing it and hearing actually what they're saying this th these are birds of fire this is incredible. This is amazing. <laughs> and I, I guess exactly. I, you know, so while you're talking about that, that's really kind of what came to the fore. And to, to maybe cut back a little bit earlier into what you were talking about, you know, you said that you were in the science stream and that that's kind of where the bright kids are funneled into. Um, but you also mentioned that you come from an artistic family. Your father's a writer, your mother's a journalist. Um, and so obviously both of those things require a certain level of intelligence. And especially to be uh, a prominent writer like your father is, that's not something that just you kind of fall into. It's something that you dedicate yourself to. And, and so it seems like you sort of came from an environment that was uh, very like uh, maybe demanding intellectually, but at the same time you had a lot of support to 
explore and be creative and, and find what you were really called to do. And I guess I'm sort of wondering, you, you know, how that environment where maybe you were challenged to push yourself, your dad said, look, you're going to play guitar. You're really going to play guitar. And he said, okay, I'm up to the challenge. And you kind of challenge yourself and challenge yourself and kept doing that. And I wonder um, maybe how that has shaped your life in general and, and, and where you think that comes from. Is it just a, an integral part of you as it developed or blossomed over the years? And, and how do you, you know, you talk about teaching your students and how you pull something that took you a year to understand. And now you're trying to help somebody understand it in three weeks. And I guess I'm wondering how you sort of process that stuff and break it down into systems that are more readily understood by someone after you've put in the hard work. How does that process go for you? And, and where do you think it came from? I'll tell you a story. So when I, when I was growing up, right, because my, my dad was actually the, I think he was the editor-in-chief for uh, basically one of the biggest uh, Malay, public, uh, Malay newspapers in the country. And I, I think it was around probably 1989. I think it was 89 or 1990. So I was probably like nine years old or something. And um, he decided to quit his job as an editor because he was tired of, uh, basically he was tired of being in the newspaper where it was regulated. Basically, whoever would be the powers that be would control what news would come out, right? It's, it's just about politics, right? It's like the news we put out will be the news we want people to read. And so, in fact, he wrote a book about this. He wrote a book called Hujan Pagi, which means morning rain. And it's about media being controlled by politics or whoever owns the publication. And so he quit. And as a result of that, uh, he was in the house all the time. So unlike a lot of people where you know you would have stay-at-home moms my mom went to work and my dad would be working at home so i would literally just watch my dad be reading books and writing books he had all these like um like cards he would write character you know like this is this character name whoever and this is what he would do and this is what he would say and so i saw structures he had structures of organizing things and he i remember when as as a kid he would tell me you know what as you know you you could write a story and you could start from the beginning to the end. But what if you wrote, you take chapter six and you put that first and you put chapter two here and you put chapter six, uh, five here and chapter four here and then you'd leave this out until the very end or something. He would teach me structures for storytelling and he wasn't like, he wasn't formally trained as a writer. I mean, he basically, uh, I think just before university, I think he had this thing called like, uh, I forgot what certificate is something. But uh, it's basically he, did, he didn't have a university education. He, he went up to high school level and he, he had some kind of certification because Malaysia was colonized by the British. So right about independence, 1957, uh, British rule went to Malaysian rule. So uh, people, uh, and my dad grew up through uh, British education, through the Japanese World War, Japanese occupation here. So he went to Japanese school. So he, could, he can speak some Japanese, like some basic Japanese. Uh, and also then he went to some Malay education as well. So he went through different, three different school systems. And also he was encouraged by people to, his, some of his teachers encouraged him to write. So he had, he, when, in his 20s, he had short stories and essays and like, well, short stories and poetry being published and stuff like that. And um, when I grew up watching him write, that led me to a very, uh, I was a very independent learner. Even though I went through the school system, when I think about it, some parts of how I, I learn have been um, what would be homeschooled now in a way, because like, you know, I would go to school and learn stuff, 
but I would also have all these books at home that I would be able to read because he had books at home, right? So, and the weird thing is, this is another funny story. Um, my parents never taught me how to read. So up to like age seven, when I went to school, I couldn't read. I failed my midterms for my like, when I was seven, right? My first year in school, I failed my reading and comprehension. The, someone, the teacher would give me a thing and I, I couldn't read it. No one taught me how to read. Like literally, and it's very weird because it's like, uh, my girlfriend told me this, is like, your, your parents never taught you how to read because in, in, a, in a Chinese Malaysian household, if you're a competitive household, you get your kid to read as soon as possible. But my parents were like, yeah, he'll learn how to read. You know, it's just like kind of like, it's kind of like a hippie family, man. It's like free flow. We would decide like, oh yeah, we probably should go out and eat. And one hour later, we'll go out and eat or something. It's like very <laughs> free flow. But as a result of that, I was so used to independently be driven to do creative things. So like for me, um, for example, yesterday I had an idea. I had an idea. Okay, I'm going to make uh, my first Malay video course in Malay, guitar course about Neo Soul, R&B guitar. Because a lot of people have been asking me. I thought like, you know what? I'm going to make it. And so what I did was I made a, a cover art thing on Canva. I wrote a sales page for it. I wrote a description for it. I, and I started selling it yesterday before I slept. So one, I got one pre-order in. So I guess I should make it now. <laughs> because someone ordered it. So I have to make it. And, and those kind of things where it's kind of... Um, I make, I decide a project. It's like very, it's very entrepreneurial, meaning that no one forced me to do something. I decide autonomous, autonomously decide to do something. It's something that I've used to since I was a kid. But as a result of that, I don't work, I don't play well with others. I don't like structures imposed to me. But I can I can make projects on my own, and I'm I'm very I'm quite independent if it's an artistic project. But if it's like, you know, if someone tells me to do something, I'm like, why do I have to do that? It's like, you know, it, it took me a while. And I'm an only child. So I'm, I'm a spoiled brat. I'm a spoiled brat, man. And, and it, meaning that if I don't get something my way, you know, for years, I'll be like, but why? You know? <laughs> and, and so in terms of education, the benefit of that is if I'm curious about something, I'm extremely driven to figure it out at all costs. Until I get bored. If I get bored, then it's like, you know what, forget about it. But I would, I would pursue something like, you know, I'm super into like bluegrass guitar, you know. I'm horrible at it, but I like it because I like Gillen Welch, I like David Rawlings, I like the whole Americana scene. And it's something that fascinates me because I'm not from the South. But I like that kind of stuff. I like I like Appalachian music, that, that kind of thing. And if it fascinates me, I will I will uh, like casually chase and explore it for years, like literally for years. You know, gypsy jazz. Now, all these things, a lot of it, I do really badly. And I tell my students this, a lot of stuff, I do it really badly, but I'm curious about it. So the things I could figure out, you know, I'd be like. No. <laughs> that one will be in C minor. But the thing is, right, I like, I like a puzzle, right? So I would be curious about R&B. I figure out what, the, what are they doing there? I'd, I'd be curious about New Soul. What are they doing there? Gypsy Jazz, what are they doing there? And so I, I think... Um, because of that curiosity, I, I, then I will break it apart into systems where you could consume it faster because it's like, oh, you need, you need these chords 
and these scales and these melodies. And if you put them together and you actually listen to the music, you would have fake R&B or fake new soul or like enough gypsy jazz to sound kind of gypsy jazz, but not super authentic. And I think, um, and I'm, I'm also obsessed about books on learning. So like books on like, what's the book? The First 20 Hours by Josh Kaufman or uh, Little Book of Talent, uh, Daniel Coyle, Beyond Talent. So anything that has the word, you know, like talent or beyond talent or breaking down learning, you know, learning system, I'm super curious about those. So I will just buy those to figure out how you break apart things and assemble. And coincidentally, when I was a kid, I loved, I loved playing with Lego, but I would only assemble the building once before I destroy it and I have this mess of Legos that I would just build, build completely different buildings from it. And which is why the attraction to jazz, right? One attraction to jazz. I, w I studied classical guitar, which is, here's the piece of music, respect the composer, play it as written and play it as perfect and as beautiful as possible. Your wife's classical pianist, you would understand this. Play it as beautifully and respect the composer. And jazz would be like, you can make shit up, basically. You yeah. can make stuff up. You can be your person. It's like, I think it's the, uh, the perfect American art form. It's like, this is the history, but do your thing. And if you sound too much like someone else, we don't like you. Because you're not supposed to sound like someone else. You're supposed to know how to sound like someone else, but go forth, do your own thing. That was the attraction. Because studying classical music was structure. And studying jazz was like, what is the structure? And that took me years to figure out. That there is a structure in jazz, in like practicing improvisation, the, the idea of practice. That's what led me to studying in the States, you know, just studying with jazz improvisation teachers that would teach you, do this and this and this, now forget it. And then one, another guy would be, I, I would go to a class, this is, this is teacher Mick Goodrick in Berkeley. He would say, this is the thing, like modes are the thing. And I'll go to another class, this guy, Garrison Fuel, who passed away like a few years ago. He would say, uh, don't use scales, you know, it's all about the chords. And so I would go for one class and to the next class and they would be saying completely opposite things. So I got used to contradictions that were both true. And in Asian culture, man, Malaysian culture, people can't accept that. You mean that this is true and this is true? I'm confused. Because in Asian culture, our education system is spoon-feeding you. It's like, do this and this and this and this and you'll get an A+. plus. You'll be set. You'll go to university. You'll be okay. But when I went to the, the States, you know, it's like, this is true. And by the way, whatever he said was also true. Now you decide what is your truth. Hmm. That was the attraction. Loved it. Love it. So... <laughs> as you were kind of going through those things yeah so i was just going on i, I talk a lot <laughs> no no that's yeah. a this is a rants are welcome kind of a podcast okay um, but what what you were saying I, I was thinking to myself well man it's no wonder he gets a kick out of my book because that's kind of what that's all about it's like look here's some principles now you decide how you want to live that's and and that's been my whole thing my whole life i'm an only child as well and my dad is a very interesting character because on the one hand is just hyper masculine, hyper alpha, hyper alpha, just sort of it's this is the way things are about certain things, but then creatively, intellectually, you always encourage me to do whatever I want in that regard read what you want, listen to whatever music you want, explore creatively whatever you want, and I'll encourage you to do that, but just go for it, you know, don't half ass it. And having that sort of juxtaposition and, and I'm an only child and I was raised basically only by my father. My grandparents helped when I was a kid, but my parents divorced. My mom really wasn't uh, involved in my childhood. And so I had this interesting thing where it's like, it's, it's Mr. Like super hardcore will on the one hand, but then on the other hand, Hey, you know, 
I'm not going to get in the way of whatever music you want to, or books you want to read. And that's cool. And make stuff, go make stuff. It's interesting to you. Go for it. And as a result of that, a lot of the stuff you were saying, I can identify. It's like, yeah, you know, I've always been pretty sharp about picking stuff up that I'm interested in, but I don't want to just keep doing the same damn thing over and over again. It drives me crazy. But like you, you made the Legos and then you're like, I'm good on that. I'm just going to do whatever I want now because I understand the principles. Now I'm going to make my own thing. Okay. I understand the principles of jazz and now I'm going to go make my own sounds. I, I understand the principles of this and it's enough, but now I'm going to do my own thing. And that's something that I really identify with. And it's something also that I think, in order to sort of maximize your creative expression of who you are as a person, you have to, you have to adopt at least a piece of that ideology and, and bring it in, internalize it because that allows you like my essential chanceness can only be expressed if I have the capacity to understand who I am by, by, you know, and, and that's a, that's a great example of the thing that you said about like only play scales. Well, only play chords. Well, decide what you want to do and create your own style and make something of that. And that's, that's true in religion. That's true sort of in, in the traditional sense of politics. It's like, well, this is the extreme and this is the extreme and where are you in this spectrum? And exactly. And so I guess I'm wondering sort of in that frame and in that light, um, what do you think it is about you in particular? I mean, you mentioned you're an only child and you kind of have an artistic family, but you also seem to have this like a, infinite fascination and this dedication to exploring that fascination and, and manifesting whatever comes from it. And I'm wondering, number one, maybe why you think it is that you are that way. And I'm also wondering how much, like how much composing or how much original music do you uh, create? Or are you, are you typically playing other people's music or do you make a lot of your own original music or how does that go for you? Okay, in terms of the composing thing, to be honest, I haven't written a lot of new stuff recently. And I find that, that I went through a lot, uh, a, a huge period of composing a lot. So I have, I don't know, I have like something like 10, 12 albums out or something. I, I went through periods where I was composing a lot. My first album, uh, when I was, uh, I recorded my first album called Acoustic Gestures in 2004. Uh, and that was like three, four years in the making. I, I was playing fingerstyle guitar music. So, you know. <laughs> All this kind of new AG Wynnum Hill kind of stuff, Michael Hedges, Alex DeGrassi. And uh, so I was writing that kind of music because that really resonated because it's like a little bit of the classical thing, but there's a bit of the jazz harmony thing. And I wasn't doing it like intellectually. It was just like something that I resonated with. So I was writing that kind of fingerstyle guitar music, literally 1980s and 1990s fingerstyle music before it became a thing on YouTube. Because like in 2004, when YouTube came about, uh, percussive fingerstyle guitar, you know, the whole all these kind of like very visual things became possible because of the bandwidth and because of YouTube. You know, Andy McKee, which I, I love his playing, he's, he's amazing. Thomas Lee, a lot of the people I follow. And what, what happened was I recorded that album and after that I went to Berkeley. I wanted to record my first album because I wanted a document of my playing before I went to the States, before I went to Berkeley, before I learned study jazz. I wanted to know how did I sound like before all these new influences came in. And what happened was when I went to Berkeley, uh, I was I was writing a lot because I was a jazz composition major. So I wrote all these kind of jazz tunes and stuff. 
you know, like, um, oh, well, I can't remember one now, but it's basically like kind of jazz standards kind of stuff, that kind of harmony. And I wrote for big band. I wrote for like large ensemble for horns and stuff like that. And then, but I didn't release a new record until 2010. So you have to remember there's a gap here. 2004 was pre-Berkeley. I released an EP called Snow and Ice, which was basically me complaining about how cold Boston was in 2007 or 2008. And then 2010, I realized, and this is the story, I was, I was living in California at that time. I went to the bookstore. There's a bookstore right on um, the main street where uh, downtown Berkeley is. It's called Pegasus. And there was a magazine. I forgot the name of the magazine, but it was basically one of those like artsy, improvised music, contemporary music, uh, art music magazines. And in those magazines, a lot of people would be writing really abstract music, you know, things that you would only get grants from like arts foundations for, you know, you know, because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's artsy stuff. You, you would get, you would get funding for that and you would do a, a performance in a museum or something. And you would post-rationalize it with like, this is about the turmoil of the people in my neighborhood when I was five. You know, like I mean, John. it's been, Something. yeah, all, any kind of stuff where that was basically, it's not about the chords, it's about the message, about the intent, right? And I was looking at the magazine, I'm like, wow. And I read an article about some guy who had like 100 albums out. I'm, I'm like, my God, I'm such a slacker. I haven't released anything really new or substantial. I went home, you know, like, like really upset, like, you know, like a kid with a tantrum. I went home. I was like, screw this. I'm going to record my second album. So I, I, it was literally like about 12 o'clock, 12.30, like noon. I sat down, put my USB mic, and I recorded an album called Emo Attack Turtle. And the, the initials of that Emo Attack Turtle, E-A-T, is eat, eat, like eating food. And that's a play because Malaysian culture is all about food. So that was like my little joke. And the, the titles of the songs, I improvised the whole record. And uh, I, I, two, of the, two of the, like six of the tracks uh, are basically haiku titles. These are Quiet Smiles, blah, 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 and Summer's Laugh. So I basically uh, wrote two haikus as the title of the, the songs. And it's improvised music. And so at that point, you know, and I think I, I, I released that record like within a week. I was like, you know, I'm going to make the cover art now on some freeware thing on some website and I'm just going to put it out. Um, and after that, it was, uh, I, I went through a phase where I was releasing a lot of improvised music because I would just basically have inspiration. You know what? I'm going to record something new. I recorded something in Amsterdam on tour called the Amsterdam Recordings. My drummer was literally sitting down and checking his phone. Uh, or reading a magazine or something, and I recorded it on my computer just on, with my electric guitar plugged into the computer, and it's called the Amsterdam Recordings. And recorded in some hotel room in Amsterdam. And so I went through these phases where I just wanted to record a lot of music, so I was recording a lot. And then what happened was when I came back here, uh, I think a few years, like 2013 or something, I was uh, the festival director for the Pining Island Jazz Festival told me that, as you should play Malaysian music. Why? Because... No one else is going to play this music. You know, it's, this is Malaysian music. It's our, our country's music. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll play it. And I, I, I didn't think much of it until I really got into it. And I realized like, shit, this music is like really something. And I was, you'll, you'll notice a pattern in my life. Everything creative that I've done or interesting has, because I've been upset about something. I was upset at the fact that I grew up in Malaysia and no one taught me this cool music. I went to school and people taught me Sad and Doll and Autumn Leaves and Fly Me to the Moon and All the Things You Are and all these American jazz standards, which I love. But no one taught me Shindering, Jau Jau, Getaran Jiwa, you know, all these Malaysian jazz songs. And it's not that my teachers didn't knew it. It's just that 
I guess they taught me what was uh, considered canon. You know, you, you learn jazz, you need to learn 1930s to 50s jazz. You need to learn the bebop, learn bebop stuff. And so I, I did. I went through this phase where I was doing a lot of this Malay jazz stuff. And so right now, I want to write a new record. I haven't done it yet, but I found that I found my creative outlet by recording and write, writing ebooks and recording instructional material, instructional videos. So I found that if I could find a creative outlet, I realized that it's not about making a record. It's not about performing. It's finding whatever creative outlet I had in the moment. And at the moment now, it's documenting stuff I learned for people who might not afford or might not want to invest in a private lesson with me so they can buy an ebook and run with that. They could buy a video and run with that. And I'm also, I, I meet so many old musicians that, you know, people don't talk about this, but people die, people get Alzheimer's, people get cancer, people get terminal disease. And so many of Malaysian musicians are not documented that well, meaning that they don't have that many records out. They, they do cover music. They do American jazz music. They do like standards. They do hotel music. They play festivals, but they don't have a lot of recordings released. As a result, if I'm trying to tell my friend about, my student about this guy, Paul Panadurai, who has this amazing record, but he sounded amazing live, no one's going to know about them. So I thought, you know, before I need to document all the stuff I've been learning this past 23 years so that it's there. And that's been my my passion right now is documenting whatever I know, even in its imperfect form. You know what? I'm just going to put the GoPro here and record it, you know? Screw, screw it that it's not perfect. Same with the records. If you listen to my records, I make mistakes on the records. I play bad notes. I make, like, noises and stuff like that. But I think the expression and documentation is more important than the perfection. And that's my driving philosophy. I'm very much in the same school. And I wasn't always. As a kid, I was very obsessive, compulsive. I'm still obsessive, but not so much. Like I'm not. I'm not a perfectionist, and and I very much was. And then I had to. I had to break that because I never got anything done. Because you know, as a kid, I would. I would. I was a pretty good artist, and I would sit down for hours, and I would have a picture that I was trying to draw, and and I would draw, and it would look pretty good, and people would come and go, "Wow, Chance, that's a really great drawing." And it's like, no, it's garbage, and I throw it away, and I do it again. And I'd erase and I'd do it again. I'd be like, well, I don't want to have erase marks on here. Garbage, throw it away. And I would just, and then finally I'd be like, well, it's bedtime chance. No, just let me, you know. <laughs> and, it, and it turns out actually that my dad was very much the same way. My aunt told me one time, your dad was a, just an incredible artist. And he threw basically everything he ever drew away because it wasn't exactly perfect. And he stopped drawing it all. Uh, and at a certain point I thought, I have this need inside of me to do my own thing. I have to, I have to express who I am as chance. And I'm not, I'm just not, not going to do that because it's stifling in the times in my life when I've stifled that I've want, you know, I've had, I've had issues with suicidal thoughts and all this kinds of stuff because there's something within me that just is screaming and bursting to get out. And when I don't let it out, it, it, it's, it like destroys me from the inside out. You know? And so when you're talking about this, it's like, it's the same with this podcast, man. People ask me, uh, so how long is it going to take you to edit this podcast? And I go, edit? <laughs> no, no, man, this is going up tomorrow, <laughs> as is. And but it's or it's like it's like the book on common mentality. Is that exactly the book I wanted to write? No, but I, I felt once I was done, and and I, I set a release date on that book, and I was literally writing that book up until four minutes before I released that book. 
was like, oh my God, I got, okay, I got to go to a coffee shop. I got to finish this book up. I got to get it done. Okay. And I, I literally cannot wait any longer. This is the absolute minute I set this deadline, I publish. And I got it out yeah. and, it's, and it's been cool. And, you know, I'm planning on doing a revised and expanded edition on that book because I've had a lot of feedback, you know, and, and things like that. But I guess the point I'm getting at is that if I hadn't written that book, I've sold almost a hundred copies of that book. It's not, a, you know, it's not a big deal, but it's some, That's it's good. a lot. And I've had yeah. a lot of feedback on that book. People said the same thing as you. It's like, I read the book and basically I got the book because I like you chance, but then I went, Oh, Oh, there's some stuff in here. I really want to get into and, and I'm going to go and reread this. And, and I've had a lot of feedback like that. And it makes me feel good because I wrote that book because I had to go through some stuff to learn the things that I put in that book. And when people come back and they say, hey, I really liked, even sometimes it's just, I really like this one thing. This one thing I've brought into my life and it's brought me something valuable. It's like, perfect, man. I'm really glad to hear that. And that never would have happened. And none of those people would have had their lives enhanced if I hadn't just said, okay, I'm putting it out. And I guess the point that I'm trying to get at there, and this is maybe just for people to key into here a little bit, is look, if you have something to offer, you have to put it out there. It's it's inside of you. It's like your divine purpose, man. Come on. You know, it's, exactly. if it's inside of you that it has to be out, let it out. It doesn't have to be perfect. You can always come back. Like some of those improvisation albums that you put out, if there's something really special in there, you can always go back and hone it because now you have exactly. more you have the, you know, the sort of hindsight. So I'm, I'm wondering, man, you, you have a lot going on. Yeah. You know, think about like, I want to learn how to learn. I want to learn everything that you sound like one of those guys like me. It's like, I just want to know everything. Yeah. And I had pretty to much. With like, I can't know everything, but I'm still going to try, but I'm going to be okay that I can't, but I'm still going to try. But yeah. <laughs> so I guess I'm wondering where do you, here's, here's the thing I'm curious about because in my life at a certain point, I was so independent and so just, I want to do what chance is going to do that. I pushed people away and I developed Uh, things. And then at a certain point I thought, well, I have a lot of stuff now, you know, I did my chance thing and I have some things that maybe people haven't been exposed to or that is uncommon or that, you know, and now I want to give it back to the people. And I'm wondering maybe if you went through a similar process where you had to do your own thing, but now it's like, I did my own thing and I want to give it to you. And I I wonder kind of that journey and how you went through it. That's, it's so fascinating that you put it that way because it is like that. I, like I said, I grew up in an artistic family. So it means that I was encouraged to have self-expression. And as a result, I'm, I'm the, I was like the prototypical stubborn artist. What do you mean I have to do it that way? I'm going to do it my way. And so a lot of the early albums I bought, I, I made, right, very few people bought them. I mean, how many albums? I mean, my first record, I made a thousand copies. That that sold out because that was actually a physical CD run and over four or five years, it sold out. But after that, I was like, my first lesson from my first album was like, you know what? I don't want to have 1,000 CDs in the house. <laughs> I'm going to actually just do runs, small runs. So I did CDR runs. I, I, did, I mean, I did a, a, a actual 50 CD, like properly duplicated run. But after that, I just made, I, I was like into this indie mindset that, I'm going to make just enough copies of it to sell so that I don't have to keep stock. So like a lot of my albums, if it's physical CDs, it's very hard to get them because I made them on demand. When I had a show, I guess I should bring 50 CDs out. And my girlfriend, who's also my manager, she, she used to do that on her, her computer and we would burn CDs and we would make the artwork. I would go to my Photoshop and make a, a 4R photo of it, of the album, and we would cut it 
it's so it's super indie. It's like like arts and craft, you know. I just put it and then number it. And I would I, because I I was into comic books as well, so I'm into the idea of limited edition collectibles. So I would like number them and sign them and stuff like that. And so, but as a result, I I or in my twenties, I already did the whole like let me do my artistic thing, let me find myself and do this thing. And so as I I, I think when I was thirty. I went through the stage when I was 30 years old. Just This was about a year just before I went back to Malaysia. I didn't want to come back to Malaysia. I mean, at that point, I was like, I was in the San Francisco Bay Area. I loved, I loved San Francisco. I thought it was like such a great artistic scene. Uh, but it's very hard to make a living there, especially if you're, if you're not an American citizen where I had to work. I have to work within my field of study after I graduated. That's just like immigration law, right? You, you can, you can uh, work in your field of study but for in order for me to stay longer, I would have to get uh, either some kind of work visa or some kind of artist visa. Um, and so I couldn't find any viable options for me to prolong my stay. And, you know, my parents were still supporting me as well. They were sending me money for me to do my thing, find myself, do my art. And um, so I was kicking and streaming coming back to Malaysia. But what I found out was I thought I wouldn't be able to play gypsy jazz anymore. I wouldn't be able to play video game music. I wouldn't be able to play fingerstyle music. I mean, fingerstyle music, I was already established here as an acoustic guitarist. But when I came back, I realized that I could do everything. And I could do even more because the scene is smaller here. You know, big fish, small pond kind of thing. But I find that you grow based on the amount of opportunities you get. And within a five, you know, like from 2011 to 2019, I've done so many amazing, interesting artistic things that I have friends in New York who might be, they are in the center of like jazz in the artistic world, but you might be stuck playing in a small club every week for five people because you're searching for your art. But I mean, you might be, art, they might be artistically more refined than me. They might be more pure, but I got a lot of gigs that they, just because geographically I'm, I'm located here, I got a lot of opportunities. And I worked my ass off trying to get those gigs and trying to like basically perform at the best of my ability. And because of that, I could grow artistically. And I found that the progression I had was I'm more, I, I'm less of an artist now, meaning that I'm not so stubborn about my art. I'm more open to collaborations and getting feedback more than ever. I'm still stubborn, but less, just less stubborn than before. And what I found was this past few years, I've been fascinated with all these other things on Money Twitter, you know, like stuff like copywriting, sales letters, you know, DMing people or like, I mean, I'm not very good at DMing people, but like, you know, just like writing good copy, writing good sales pitches, uh, you know, negotiation, all these things that actually are life skills. As an artist, if you do not know how to talk to someone, you cannot get a gig. If you don't know how to socialize with people in public, it's very hard to build a network of friends and just build relationships. You know, I, I know so many people, they, they DM me super awkward things like, bro, can you listen to my music? I'm like, I have no idea who you are. You've never commented on my thing ever, you know, but just like those things. And because of my fascination on that, nowadays, I've been teaching and that more. How do you DM someone? How do you send a good email for someone to actually take notice? You know, I've been writing a lot of reviews of books. I've been doing a lot. I have a podcast which I literally record before I get an Uber. You know, I, I, I have about 200 episodes of it plus, uh, and they are all recorded on my phone literally while waiting for an Uber. I'll have my phone and I'll be like, you know, one idea. It'll be like a one minute podcast. And some of it's an hour long, but some of it's just like three minutes or something on one thought. 
And so I'm always interested in finding what I call containers. How do I express myself within a format? A podcast is a format. Uh, an album is a format, an ebook is a format. Those are all containers. And so within those containers, I can be creative. And within an hour, one hour lesson, I can be creative. Within a half an hour talk, or I, I've done like three TEDx uh, talks. So I did one where I was performing, two, the other two I was talking. And so, is still there or did the stream for a freeze? Chance, you still there? I think it froze on me. Oh, we good. Okay, cool. So anyways, so um, that is my fascination. So nowadays, I've, I've been more interested on the commerce side, on the business side, on the interpersonal side. And those have been the things I've been talking about to younger musicians or younger artists in general. So I've been invited to give talks on those topics because I find that that is what's lacking in the education system. You know how to make good music, but can you make a living from it? How, and I'm, I'm all about the long game. How long can you have a sustainable career in the arts? Someone could start a band and be famous in Malaysia within like a year and a half to two years, and they, they could be disbanded in two years. But I'm more interested in how could you start a band and still have a career in music for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? How do you do that? And how do you not, when you're 50 years old, um, like suddenly realize that you can't gig and still have make a living rather than having to make a Kickstarter for like, oh, you know, this amazing musician, he can't work anymore. Let's raise some money for him, which is why I'm writing ebooks. I'm trying to figure out what are ways where I could potentially have kind of, not sort of passive income or residual income at least from what I do anyway. So I'm not, I'm not starting a dropshipping store or Shopify store or something, but I'm doing something that I'm already doing. But what parts of this thing that I do could be monetized so that when I'm 50 years old, I'm not starving and I, I, I can still like, you know, still do art and still like be self-sufficient. Those things I'm teaching people right now because I'm fascinated with that. That's what has led me from this journey of being super artist to now being like, how do you, how do you make a living from this? That's my journey. I like that. And there's a lot I identify with in there. And, and mine's, mine's not necessarily dissimilar, although my sort of infinite fascination leads me to, you know, like I, I played drums very, in a very mediocre quality, and I, and I write, and I'm not an excellent writer. I mean, I'm a decent writer, and I, um, you know, I, I tweet, and I'm not the best tweeter, but I'm good at it. And I, uh, you know, I lift weights, and I'm not the world's strongest man, but I'm damn strong. And I, you know, I kind of, I get pretty damn good at stuff and then I don't it's like I lose interest kind of like you talked about before it's like okay well if I really wanted to dedicate myself to this one thing I know I could be the best or close to it but I don't want to just do that I'm fascinated and so it sort of drives me back and forth and what I've had to start to understand especially because I'm married I have three kids it's, it's not just a, a life of whimsy and just sort of following my nose wherever it goes anymore it's like how can I turn these things that I'm interested in into enough of an income doing my own thing that I can cut every chain around me and then I can do whatever I am doing to provide an income wherever I want to do it and while I'm pursuing whatever I want to do and then I can turn that into something that I'm already doing. And so for me, things like this podcast or writing or uh, these kinds of activities, they're very broad. I could talk to you. I could talk to a businessman. I could talk to a politician. I could talk to a religious leader. I could talk to just some dude who I thought 
deserve to have a chance to tell their story, even if they've got one follower on Twitter or they're just like my brother-in-law or something like this. You know, I could just bring whoever I want and talk to them. And same with the writing. Yeah. It's like I could write a self-help book or I could write fiction or I could write a blog or I could write an email and these kinds of things. It just allows me, if I can, if I can develop a following and I can develop an income from doing some of these things, then I can sort of follow that fascination. And it's like what I'm really hoping to do eventually. And sooner rather than later, to be honest, although I, I have, I have principles and things and I don't, you know, I don't like to get too sleazy about the sales thing. I know a lot of people, it's just like, yeah. just go for it and extract as much as you can. But like you talked about, I want to have a relationship with my audience that they feel like they know me and they do because I'm being genuine and open. And I feel like I know them because I'm interacting with enough of these people that they know that I'm not just full of shit. And I'm not just some guy who's trying to jerk them around because I want some of their money. I want to offer you something. And then I want to be paid for that because I feel like I've given you something valuable and I know it's valuable because I put so much work into it. And I guess that's sort of a message people to cue into. It's like, Hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with getting paid, especially if you're putting your heart and your soul and your effort into it. And, and that's, that's what it's kind of all about. You know, that's the beauty of a capitalistic system is yeah, you can be a monster. You, you can just make it all about the money and all about getting rich. And that's sort of your passion is just money. But to me, that's a hollow thing. It's all about letting the money fund the adventure, not the adventure being the money. And I think that's important distinction. So look, I warned you about this, but we've been going <laughs> for, we've been going for, we're, we're closing in on 90 minutes right now. Yeah. And we've talked about sort of, this is Oz. This is, this is where you come from. This is the atypical um, upbringing that you've had. And then, you know, and then not only that, but then you went all over the world and you've done all these very cool and interesting things. And you've talked about how you extracted all the lessons from all these different styles of music and all these places that you've been and all these teachers. And then you're starting to be the teacher. You're starting to share those lessons. And that's something that I really appreciate. And I know, you know, I, I've had a great time talking to you. I feel very at ease talking to you and you seem like a great guy. And there's going to be people because, you know, I have an audience. People listen to this. It's not just you and I. And for certain, there's going to be people out there who listen and go, man, you know, Oz, you sound like a really awesome guy. And I want to be able to express myself in such a way. I want to find the teachers and I want to decide for myself. And I want to coalesce these ideas into something that's essentially me. But I don't have any idea even where to start. But you seem like you've got it going on. And if that person was sitting in front of you, whoever it is in your head that you imagine that would be, and they said, you know, Oz, can you, can you tell me how to, what are one or two things that if I started doing these things right now, maybe on a principle basis or just like a daily practice basis, what are the one or two things that would give me the most bang for my buck that I could start doing right now that would set me up for success on this path of personal exploration and creation? If that person was sitting in front of you asking you that, what would you tell them? I'm going to tell them something that I, I think, okay, it's like this. I think you have to know yourself. And I find that there are two ways for me to make stuff, to create something. And it's either, and I think like different people will be, will be driven to different, different things. One is if you're a disciplined person, if you are not easily bored, then you need to do something small that, it's systematic in a way that you can do every day 
for a certain period of time. For example, you could say, uh, you know, I mean, Jose Rosado is a big example. It's like write X number of words a day or something. Let's say, you know, I'm going to wake up and 10 minutes, I'm just going to write. First thing I do, I'm just going to write. And it doesn't matter. It's just the discipline of waking up and this is my routine. Some people have coffee, I'm going to write. So I think everyone will have a way of expression that is unique. For, for me, there was a period when writing was the thing. And then someone told me, I, you know, I kept finding all these people saying that, hey, you should just get yourself transcribed, you know, put on Google and then the microphone and it'll transcribe what you say. And I'm like, wow, that's great. I don't need to type stuff. So for some people, it might be talking. For some people, it might be video. For some people, it might be typing out. For some people, you need to write on paper. For some people, it may be drawing, painting. For some people, it may be going to a coffee, like a hipster coffee place somewhere and writing there, you know, getting one, one long black and writing stuff. You know, different people will have a different thing. But I think the first step is to find what is the most optimum way to have something simple that you can repeat. Like my podcast, I literally have the, the I have five minutes to record a podcast episode because then my car arrives and my phone will like make sounds and stuff like that. So I literally have, that was my format, my container. So I, I would say to the person, find your container and find whether you are the kind of person who could repeat a process. And over one week, you're going to get a body of work. Over one month, you're going to get a body of work. For some people, like for example, like Ben Settle, the email guy, right? He writes an email every day. And I admire that. I have no discipline like that. I, couldn't be, I wouldn't be able to write an email every single day. Jose Rosado does that, an email every single day. I, I, I know myself better now. I didn't used to know myself. I find that I'm more of the second person, which means I work best on spurts. Meaning that if I have an idea, I have to run with it and complete it within a period of time before I burn out and get bored of it. So for example, today, I will have a gap of time after this where I will have breakfast. I'll go downstairs and have really cheap Malaysian breakfast because it's like super cheap to eat out here. Literally, you could have a dollar and have like a bread with dal and like a tea or something. It's like a freaking dollar here. So you should, at some point in your life, you should do the cool, the cool nomadic thing and bring your family for a visit in Southeast Asia because if you're American and you have American dollars, it's cheaper to travel here. Anyway, side note. But I will have breakfast and I will come back up and I'm going to record my next product literally within the time from maybe uh, like 10.30 or 10.45 until about 11.30 because I have a student coming in. I have a student from Macau coming in. So I will set myself that dedicated amount of time to record as much video as I can for my product. And so that's my spurt. So you're either someone who likes to, will be able to repeat a simple process either for an indefinite period of time or a small definite period of time, or you might be the person who will need one or two days to just like, I'm going to go for this and finish it. I find that there's very few people who could do both things. They usually are one personality. I think I, I read in a Ben Settle interview or a book or something, he said, you're either the kind of person who's very dogmatic and just, I'm just going to do this every single day for the next seven years, or I'm going to go for this project. And I found that, shit, I'm the second person. So I need to finish things before I like burn out. So that's what my advice would be, is find your thing, find the method, your container for it, your process, and finish it. And that's the clue. That's the biggest tip I can say is finish it. Even if it's in, in its imperfect state, complete it. And this is the biggest thing. Put it out there. So it doesn't have to be on Gumroad. It doesn't have to be for sale. But if you're a musician, put it on SoundCloud. If you're a, a talker, put it on YouTube, on Anchor, on Spotify, whatever it is. You, know, you have to put it out there. And if you're uncomfortable with selling it at the first, the first thing, right? 
just put it out there for people to judge. And boy, people are going to judge you. It's either two things. People are going to like it or people are going to hate it. Or the worst thing is people are not even going to care about it. So I think if you're going to make something, you have to make people either like it or hate it. And that's my quest. I want to make things that either people love or hate. If it's people are indifferent about it, what I do with that is that is feedback. It means that that thing at this point in time, either your marketing sucks or the thing, no one wants it, which is fine. Because in the business world, right, people always say like, buy my $1,997 course and I'll teach you how to do this perfect thing and you're going to be a millionaire. You're going to make six figures. Because they've, but the truth is a lot of this internet marketers, they've gone through the process where they really release shitty eBooks, how to quit smoking or do this thing or, you know, like they release a $97 product that five people bought. What they don't tell you is that you go through iterations of shit products. My quest this year is release one product a month. And some of it, no one bought. or Well, people buy, but it's like two, three sales. But some of it, 30 sales, 40 sales. Some of it, a lot more. But by doing it, you get feedback. By completing it, you can move on to the next thing. The, most, the biggest danger is perfectionism that stops you from completing something. If it's perfectionism that drives your quality, that's amazing. Because you need that. Because if you don't have a, a sense of quality... You're just going to make shitty stuff that goes out to the world. No one cares about it. You may be able to scam some people via Facebook ads or something, but it's not going to last, right? It's not going to be lasting. I think make something either by a small repeatable process or make something in a small deadline. I'm going to make it in two days. I'm going to make it in five hours. I'm going to make it in two hours. And know yourself. By, doing, by trying these two things out, you'll figure out what kind of person you are. And then after that, it's just repeat. It's nothing more than that. It's just repeat. And eventually, you, you kind of get good at it because you figure out what people don't like or what you don't like and you find yourself in the process of trying to do these things. You will find who you are as a person, as a creator. And that's when you grow. That's, when, that's, what, that's what I found, you know. So I'm going to make a product by today and I'm going to probably launch it by tomorrow. <laughs> if I get all the videos done, I'll, I'll edit it by tonight and it'll be out. That's awesome, man. And and maybe just a little tip I want to throw in to, to tack onto what you said is if you don't give a shit about it, but it's necessary, systemize, systematize that stuff. You know, exactly. You have to do it, but you don't care about it. Then put it in a system and make sure you find the most efficient, quickest way to do it that's sufficient to get you by. And then you don't even have to think about it. It's just a habitual part of your routine. And then that opens the doors for your real thinking, your real energy, your real work to be in the places and the platforms that really matter to you. For example, exactly. you know, I systematize things like working out or, or these kinds of things because it's just something I need to have in my life. But it's not like, you know, like I, and there was one point in my life where I was very, I was like, I'm going to be the world's strongest man. And I tried and then uh, it didn't work out for me. And because I, I'm not a 300 pound man and I'm not going to take a bunch of steroids and wreck my heart and, and suffer the consequences there. So I was like, okay, well I'm just going to be very strong and that's the system. And then it's done. I don't even have to think about it anymore, but I have a blog and I have an email list and I write books and I have this podcast and, and I have different iterations of this podcast, even with my kids or just ranting. And then these, these sort of conversation ones. And so whenever, like if I have a creative spurt, 
like you're talking about. It's like, what do I want to do today? Well, I, I want to write an email because it's something that's kind of intimate and I want to share. Or it's like, well, I want to write, you know, maybe like 5,000 words about a subject. Well, I'm going to go to the blog. Or it's like, I really have something I need to get out of me that's going to take some time and it's going to, okay, well, I'm going to write a book. Or I have a fascination with this person. I'm going to invite them on the podcast. And if they don't agree immediately, I'm just going to hassle them for the next four months. Until <laughs> nice. They say bugger off chance and they block me. And then either way, it's like, okay, well, I did everything I could to make it happen. And so I guess the, the point I'm trying to make with that and just to add to what you said is just you are going to be one or the other of those people. You're going to be sort of like, this is my system. This is my routine. This is what I do. And this is the place where I get the most done. Or you're going to be like, I just want to do whatever I want to do. But you kind of have to be both because you have to systematize. Yes. It doesn't matter to you at least. Um, and sometimes yeah. if you get too locked up into a routine, then you, you, you run out of gas because if you do the same thing over and over again, you kind of just end up running downhill because eventually you don't have the capacity to be who you once were because you get old and you fade. So yeah. I, I have a thing too. I've been doing this and, and you're guest number five to, to be challenged to do this. And it's not a big challenge, but I want to ask you to share one question that you think people should ask of other people and one question that you think other people should ask of themselves. Whoa. People, what question people should ask other people? I think my question would be very simple. You know, like it is such an entrepreneurship question. I would just go to someone and I've asked this question to people. Um, so people have been following me on my Twitter. And interestingly enough, Malay Twitter, people who write in Malay, you know why people are writing, are on Twitter in Malaysia? Because they they can't afford a lot of data apparently so so they can't watch videos on their mobile plan so take data and as a result i've been getting all these followers of people from outside of the major city kuala lumpur and i've been getting a lot of people connected to me meaning they follow my stuff and when we meet we can actually have a conversation straight from whatever they know what i'm about and so i usually just ask them well, we're now right in front of each other. What can I do for you? Is there a question I can answer? What can, how can I help you? And literally, because they've been following me, usually they're like, oh shit, I don't know what to ask you now. I'm kind of flabbergasted they're even meeting me in person. Uh, or they might have a good question and I, we can have a deeper conversation. So I think uh, I would say, you know, if you meet someone, you, you know, if you, especially if they know what you do or what you're about, just say, you know, Hey, we're here, you know, is there something I can help you with? Is there something I can answer for you? Is there a question that I can, you know, what can I do for you? And something is so simple to ask. And I think the other question is for my, if, if it's a question for yourself or myself, it's like, literally, what do you want? Like, what do I want? And it's such a difficult question because it literally is the propelling question of that drives everything you do. Like uh, for a long time, right? I'll tell you the truth. When I when I went to the States, I actually, one of my dreams was to teach, to be on faculty at Berkeley College of Music. That's what I wanted to do because all my heroes were teaching at Berkeley. They wrote books and it was published by Berkeley Press, you know. So I literally went to the head of the, uh, the, the assistant chair. I said, I want to teach at Berkeley. Can I get a job? How do I, how do, I do this? I was, you know, an ignorant 25-year-old. It's like, you know, like, what do I need to do to get a job? And interestingly enough, he said, I don't know whether I've told this to anyone, but he said, well, when one day, when you're so famous that you are in Guitar Player magazine, you're on the covers of magazines, we'll call you. That's what he told me. 
<laughs> Which is logical, right? I mean, if you're going to get a high-profile teaching gig, you should be high-profile, right? You should be so badass that they cannot get... He said, when we cannot reach you, that's when we will hire you. Huh. Something like that, he told me. He told, it was really honest advice, right? And, and the funny thing is, after that, because he knew I wanted a teaching gig there, that's how I got my teaching gig. He said, hey, can you be a teaching assistant for this one teacher? I said, yeah, sure, I'll be a teaching assistant. What happened was the teacher fell sick. I got a gig. So I got a gig twice. So I, I literally, I think this is the other advice. This is the other unsolicited advice. If you want something out of life, go chase, chase after it. You know? Literally, yeah. just go for it. And the worst thing is you don't get it. You know? what? It's not bad. When you started, you didn't have it. Then you chase after it. You didn't get it. So not, no loss there. You're, you're where you began, but you would learn something from the process. So those are the two questions. What can I do for you? And uh, what do I want? And because if I know what I want, let's say, for example, let's say I want to lead a fulfilling life as an artist where I could serve people and teach people, but also make the music I want on my own terms. For example, let's say that's the goal. And the more precise thing, maybe I only want to do festival gigs where I perform my music or Malay jazz, for example. For example, let's say that's my answer. That will direct every single decision I make, whether it's aligned with where I'm going. And I think I've, I've gone through a few years, man, to be honest. I didn't know what I want. I mean, I know, I know what I want to do on a daily basis, but I didn't, I didn't have a clear vision for the main propelling thing. And I think it's good to every, every once in a while, just ask yourself, what do I want? Because I found that every time that I've been able to answer that question, I've gotten what I want. The hard thing is figuring out what you want. Do you want to be fit? Do you want to you know, eat well? Do you want to travel to the States? Do you want to... I wanted to do a European tour as a musician. I saved that money. I did it. One month tour. You know, it cost me a lot of money because it wasn't a, not a money making kind of thing, but it was a great experience. Amsterdam, Germany, France, you know, uh, Northern Ireland, all that kind of stuff. If I would say to anyone, like literally anyone in any kind of socioeconomic state, I mean, even if you don't have money, right? If you know what you want, and a little story. Downtown Berkeley, I was in front of a Starbucks. I was in front of this homeless dude. He said, "Spare some change." Spare some change. I had bagel from a supermarket that I bought from the from like um, Fremont or something. And I told him, man, I can't give you change, but I have a bagel here, a supermarket bagel. I said, I can spare you some food. He looked at me, now, nah, man, I want a frappuccino, bro. Even the homeless guy knew what he wanted out of his life, and he it was sure hell not the bagel I offered. I was a bit stunned, but I but I keep telling that to my students. I said. Even the homeless guy I met in front of the Starbucks knew what he wanted out of life. And at some point, he's going to get it. Because he was, he was parked right in front of the Starbucks and he knew he wanted a Frappuccino. He was like right in front where he wanted to be. And he's going to get it. I don't know. I'm sure he's, he was going to get it at some point, either by people giving him money or someone buying him a damn Frappuccino. So I thought that was the most beautiful thing out of you get what you want, but you have to figure out what you want. And that may take you a lifetime. Yeah. You, you know, I give people similar advice and I talk about it all the time on this podcast too. I always wanted to do a podcast. One day I said I had a podcast and as soon as I said I had a podcast, I had one and I started inviting people on. Ta-da. Now I have Crazy. a podcast. Ta-da. You have a podcast. Closing in on a hundred guests that I've had on this podcast. And I was like, hey man, this, this is pretty cool. It's pretty neat. It and is. Just yeah. a few months in and things are going good. And it's all just because one day I said... I have a podcast and then I started recording them and, and that's, exactly. you know, I echo that advice. It's, it's critical. It's critical. Choose in 
And, 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 and I'll add one more thing to what you said. When I say choose in, what I mean by that is you say, I'm going to go for this. And there's two options. I get it or I die. And you have to treat it with that level of seriousness, because if you don't, you're going to bitch out on it eventually. And you're going to ma- say, man, you know, it was really hard and I gave up. And then down the road, you're going to go, man, I wish I'd really done the thing that I actually wanted to do instead of withering away in this thing that I didn't want to do because it seemed a little less like uh, difficult to do at the time or, or offered a little more comfort at the time. And then now I never chased my dream and I regretted it for the rest of my life. So go for it. Go for it. Exactly. So, <laughs> exactly. This, uh, you know, this is the kind of the time where I want to give you a chance. I'm grateful for you coming on here and you've been a great guest, man. You're a fascinating dude. And in fact, uh, if you're interested, I'd like to have you on maybe a couple months down the road. We could talk about some more things. I'm interested in the Malaysian culture and stuff like that. No problem. We could branch out. But in the meantime, why don't you tell people where they can find you on social media? Why don't you tell them where they can find you on GoMode? Why don't you tell tell them where they can find your music or these kinds of things so that they they're interested in doing that. They can, they can find out more about you and invest in what you have to offer them. Okay, so um, a lot of the things on social media, you probably find me under Az Samad. That's A-Z-S-A-M-A-D. So like my Twitter, twitter.com slash Az Samad. So the first and last letters, A-Z Samad. Um, so on Twitter is that, uh, on YouTube is that, on SoundCloud is that, on Facebook is Az Samad Music, M-U-S-I-C Music. On Gumroad is Az Samad Music. Um, and there's two of my main websites where you can find the stuff I've been, either what I've been up to in the past or stuff that I'm making now. It's just azsamad.com, my website. And also I have a, another website, which is a WordPress blog kind of site. It's called azsamadlessons.com. And on that one, you can find my podcast. You can find interviews I've done with different people. I, ha- I had a series called Creative Fridays where I interview musicians and creative people from around the world. Um, and I also have uh, book reviews. I do a lot of book reviews. A lot of it's music books, but there's been now a shift to like some business and entrepreneurship books as well. There's also my blog posts about this lessons and things like that. So everything creative that I'm making now, I kind of post it on Asamat Lessons. I'm on Instagram as well, instagram.com slash Asamat. So if anyone, if, you, if you're listening to this and you're like, just find me on your favorite platform. I, I'm not on Snapchat, but if it's Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, I'm kind of addicted to all the platforms. I'm a huge Gary Vaynerchuk fan. So I produce things, crazy amounts of content daily. So I have like, I do like 40 pieces of content on Facebook every week. I tweet a lot. Uh, and I, basically, if you follow me on any of those channels, you're going to find a lot of stuff. I, my podcast is on hold right now. Uh, but I do have 200 episodes someone could listen to. And I found that the podcast was my incubation ground for mo- my most current ideas at that point in time. So if I'm thinking about something, the most raw, honest form is on my podcast, Music from A to Z. It's also on Spotify. So you can also check out my music on Spotify. And I would say if you're on Twitter or, like I said, any platform, just find me there and just connect with me. You can DM me, send me an email. Uh, and we'll connect. So send me a smart email. Don't send me like, uh, hey, bro, like with nothingness. But if you're <laughs> listening to your podcast, I'm sure your audience is highly cultured and smart and hustling. So I'm sure I'm going to get some great messages if anyone's found me from here. So yeah. 
I don't know about cultured, but they're they're probably they're probably not just gonna write you a hey bro. Um, I'll give yeah, them definitely. I mean, they they're probably if they're listening to one hour podcast, one hour and a half podcast, they're definitely cool people. Yeah, I I hope so. They they seem to be. <laughs> the ones that talk yeah, to me, they, they seem, seem to be. So look, um, I don't I don't normally get the opportunity to do this, but um, would you mind playing a piece to kind of take us out because I'd love to hear some more of your playing. Sure. Absolutely, man. My, it'll be my pleasure. So I'm going to play... Um, so the composer that you heard earlier at the beginning of the show was uh, Piram Lee. This other guy is um, Jimmy Boyle. And he's um, he was uh, he's from Penang, which is an island that uh, is very well known for the food. But he wrote this song called Chindring, which is kind of a beach in Trunganu, which is on the east coast of Malaysia. So he was one on one island, but he wrote a song about another beach. And the harmony uh, for all, for anyone who's into jazz or Brazilian music, is very similar to the Antonio Carlos Jobim song called Jinji, D-I-N-D-I, Jinji. And so uh, I found that this is kind of like a, it could be a chill bossa nova. Uh, it's called Chindring. So I hope you like it. So I'll play, I'll play this one uh, to take us out. You see how much Skype lessons I do because I'm just moving the camera in frame. I do this all the time. <laughs>
that's so beautiful. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for saying that. If you're good, you're I'm good. I'm good, man. It's been a pleasure. This is this has been. I'm not a morning person, to be honest, man. But for you, it, I woke up early for this, and I'm I'm very glad. This is a beautiful way to start my Friday morning. I, I'm really happy. I'm really happy to be on the show, and I'm really grateful we could connect. Me too, man. Genuinely, and uh, yeah, I appreciate I appreciate you taking the time to do it. And uh, in that case, my friend, this has been the Logos and Trivial Podcast. I've been Chance Lunsford. He's been Oz Samat. Uh, this has all been Allegedly, and we're out of here. We here at the Logocentrifugal Podcast work hard to bring you the highest quality audio, the best editing, and the most professionalism of any podcast on the market. Either that or we do the exact opposite. Either way, consider supporting the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can support the podcast by supporting the podcast. There's a link somewhere, and I encourage you to click the link to support the podcast professionally.